This week on Q&A, Grace Cannon Warnicke, daughter of American diplomat George Cannon. She discusses her memoir, Daughter of the Cold War. Grace Cannon Warnicke, why did they call you years ago Miss X? Because my father, George Kennan, who was in the State Department and later ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, wrote a big, sent back the longest telegram ever sent to the State Department in 1947. This telegram became an article which he was not allowed to sign. It first appeared in Foreign Affairs, and it was called the X article, because it was anonymous. It was not, they didn't know who signed it. And it then was reprinted in Life magazine. But because of this mystery about it, it was called X, and I was called Miss X by people who thought they were very smart. And um, I kind of liked it. I was in college, so it was in the 50s. And what was the telegram about? I know it's 5,500 words. Yeah, it was. I've seen the whole telegram laid out on tables. It's amazing. Uh, The telegram was about the fact that we had just finished the war. We were allies, as you know, with uh, the Soviet Union. But my father felt that um, people were being taken in, if you say, by the Russians, that they were giving them too favorable a uh, picture. Stalin was being called Uncle Joe, and there was this little element that we're all just buddies. And he still knew it was a pretty terrible system. And he felt he had to write this telegram to kind of alert people that things were not as well as some people thought it was. I know it's often called a containment theory that he proposed. Uh, did it? Was it accepted by the State Department and the governments? Well, I don't know whether it was ever formally accepted, but it really became U.S. policy for over 50 years. I mean, it had a huge influence on the State Department. And... Um, it's so interesting because my father died in 2005 and we thought well you know we're, he's going to be part of history but we're not going to hear anything about him and now I hear about him all the time he's constantly being quoted and it it means to me he sort of still keeps him alive let's show a little bit of video this is only 30 seconds of your father in 1966 talking, oh, wow. talking about Vietnam The spectacle of Americans inflicting grievous injury on the lives of a poor and helpless people, and particularly a people of different race and color, no matter how warranted by military necessity or by the excesses of the adversary our operations may seem to us to be or may genuinely be, this spectacle produces reactions among millions of people throughout the world profoundly detrimental to the image we would like them to hold of this country. When you see that video, what's the first thing you think about? I think about what a good speaker he was. I really did. What was your relationship with him? Well, I had two relationships. I had the childish relationship, which was before he became famous. So although he traveled a lot and he wasn't, there were two years I never saw him. We were separated a lot. But when he was there, he was very funny and he would make up stories. We had a farm and all the animals had names and personalities. He loved the wind in the willows and I think he carried that on. And he'd have the horse talking to the cow. Things that are very 
very, very appealing to children. And he was always uh, interested in whatever I brought home, I mean, whatever I was reading. So what was your relationship with your mother? Well, I didn't. My mother, I think I was born too soon after they were married. I came nine months later. And she came from a small provincial Norwegian town, her husband. She didn't even graduate from high school. And she married this brilliant man who was also difficult because he was intellectual and um, introverted and complex. And I can't believe that it was so easy being married to him. I mean, she was a sort of um, nice, outgoing Norwegian lady girl. And she was very young. She was 20 when they they were met in Berlin. They were engaged six weeks later. And they were engaged, uh, I mean, they were engaged six weeks later, excuse me, and married soon after that. How long did they stay married? All their lives. They had their 70th wedding anniversary on September 11th, of all terrible times. And uh, none of us could come. We couldn't get there. This book called Daughter of the Cold War is a memoir of yours, Grace Kennan Warnicke. Why did you write this? The reason I ask you this is because it's very personal. I hear that quite a bit. People <laughs> are quite surprised by how personal it is. I wrote it because I'm a storyteller. And as I told stories, and I often did, um, people said, you have to write them down. You have to do something with this. You've had an amazing life. You've met unusual people. But I was working all the time, and I couldn't write a book and work full-time. It didn't work. So um, it wasn't feasible, put it that way, for me. When I came back from Ukraine, where I'd been living for four and a half years and working, I, empowering Ukrainian women, helping them to start small businesses, I decided it was time to empower me on a lot of levels. And one of the levels was I was going to write a book. I went to the 92nd Street Y. I took a course called Memoirs from the Middle. And five of us from that who took those courses at different times, taught by a wonderful poet named Veronica Golis, five of us um, made a writing circle, and we're meeting to this day. We've met for 10 years. And it took me eight years to write the book. I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And the writing circle kept begging me to say more, tell more, reveal more, if you will. And the book that I ended up writing was definitely not the book I started out with. What's the difference? <laughs> it's much more revealing, much more open, much more um, candid, I guess. But also, it's a book I would not have written if my parents were still alive. I would never have wanted to hurt my mother in any way. But she, as you will read in the book, was pretty much not there for me in my childhood. Well, I'm going to just jump in and pick something. We can go back over a lot of the, your life. But I'm going to pick something that stuck out on page 115. Your first husband, C.K. McClatchy. Is that the McClatchy newspapers? Yeah. This is one line, and you can explain it all. Don't you realize who your husband is and what he is doing? Don't you know he's gay? What What is that about? Well, he was gay, and um, I didn't know. I had no idea. And I was told that by a friend of his. 
But what's the, what are the circumstances about him? Where did you marry him? What was he like? And how? And what were the circumstances that somebody would tell you that he's gay? Well, first of all, he was a wonderful man, a really nice man, and a bright man, an interesting man. And I feel so badly for him that he was gay at a time when being gay was really not encouraged or permitted and was looked down on. So much so that people didn't talk about it. There wasn't any conversation. There wasn't the word gay. It was all different. Uh, I don't think the word gay was... I use it in my book, and I think that's a mistake, actually. I don't think probably another word was used. Um, and um, he was he was a terribly nice man. Where did you meet him? I met him at Adlai Stevenson's house, of all things, in Libertyville, Illinois, the night that Eisenhower accepted the Republican nomination for president. Why were you both there? Uh, because um, I was with my father. We were in um, Highland Park. He was doing some research at the University of Chicago and um, in the library there. And um, Stevenson heard my father was there and wanted to meet him or see him, and we were invited for dinner. And that's how we got there. And C.K. McClatchy was assistant press secretary for Stevenson. So he was there. How much time after that were you married? Well, I didn't see him again. He then moved to Washington after the campaign. So it was about six months later he phoned me up and said, I wasn't even sure who he was. It was very, you know, but I knew I met him at Stevenson's house. And um, and then we were married um, probably ten months after we met. How long were you married? Eight years. And was this particular incident... What killed the marriage? I just read the uh, when the group was there at the house. I'm sure a few other things. Well, the fact that I've been living sort of in a world I didn't understand. What I does think that that's mean? a better. Well, I had no idea he was gay. Yeah. And um, so I think some of the things all married couples have problems. I mean, there's no marriage. At least I've seen very few that are perfect. Um. But I think some of the problems we had came from the fact that that he was really not interested in women as women. Where did you live when you were married to him? We lived in Sacramento, California. All my children were born in Sacramento. How many children? Three. And where are they today? Two are in California, and one is in western Pennsylvania. My youngest son, Kevin, is now chairman of the board of McClatchy Newspapers. So we haven't gone far. Now, how did that happen? Well, before that, he was the um, he loved sports, and he was the managing um, the managing owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates. So he moved to Pittsburgh a long time ago, and still he was eleven years running the Pirates when baseball did, team. When did your former husband C.K. McClatchy die? About twenty-four years ago. He died a long time ago. Just a question about your relationship with him and your kids. They're all those kids all belong to your marriage with Mr. Oh, McClatchy. Yeah. What did they think of your memoir? Well, I think they probably have mixed feelings, but they're very nice to me and they were polite about it. And they they're also proud. Why would they have mixed feelings? 
Well, I don't think they wanted everything that was in our family life necessarily there for people to read. But I purposely did not write about them. If, if you look at the book, it has very little. It has something. I mentioned my children, but it's not... They're in it very little. I mentioned when my son bought the pirates because it affected the whole family. Even my father came to a pirates game and was keeping score and everything. It was... How many places have you lived in the world? I couldn't even count, but I'm sure lived, you mean. Basically lived with your father or, you know, the, the story gets complicated over Germany and all those kind of things, but where, where have you lived? Well, we lived in at least seven countries when I was a little girl, and I did speak five languages by the time I was 12. It was not 11, it was 12. And I spoke Russian, Norwegian, German, Portuguese, and, and um, French. Um, or, yeah, yes. Um, and we moved all the time. I mean, in those years, we lived in we lived in Riga, Latvia, where I was born. We lived in in Vienna. We lived in Russia. We lived in Prague. We lived in Berlin. Portugal. Por we, li we then went to Portugal and lived in Port Lisbon, and then back to Russia. I mean, there was always a lot of back to Russia. Um, and that's when I did go to a Soviet school as the only foreigner. And I was in the fifth grade. It was the last year of the war. How's your Russian? It's good. It's fine. What's the story about your father being interred in Germany? Well, he was in, he was in Berlin in Germany when the war started. And the Germans rounded up everybody in the embassy, plus any other strays that they could find. So there were journalists there. It, it, it was not just embassy people. And they were taken out to an abandoned old health resort in Bad Nauheim. And they were imprisoned for six months. And then they exchanged the journalists. They both had a dramatic little crossing of the waters on a Swedish ship, the Gripsholm. And where were you during those six months? We had moved for reasons I will never... There were mysteries in my childhood. One of them is why my mother decided to move to Bronxville, New York. It's never been clear to me. Um, and before that, we'd been staying with relative, my father's sister out in um, Illinois. And the year before, I'd gone to school in Illinois and in Milwaukee. We moved, we moved in the one year to two different places. Dad born in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. There is a George Kennan or a Kennan Institute, but it's not your father. It is my father. It's it's my father and his original, the original George Kennan, for whom he is named. He's born on the same day. And they wanted to name it after my father. My father wanted it named after his distant relative. And I've always assumed that it's named after both of them. But, well, they have the same name, so it's pretty easy. Where is it located? At the Woodrow Wilson Center, International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. How involved are you in it? I'm on their advisory council and have been for about 14 years. Who runs it? Right now, the, it's Matt Rojansky is the director of the Kennan Institute. And what does it do? It um, provides a home for scholars from both Russia and 
well, the former Soviet Union's a better word for it because it's not, it goes beyond Russia, and American scholars who are trying to learn something about Russia. And we've been very lucky. We've gotten a lot of Title VIII money that funds these scholarships. In addition, we put on a lot of, the Kennan Institute puts on seminars about U.S.-Russia relations, cultural relations, political relations, economic, the Arctic. I mean, there are many, many different levels on which we relate with Russians. Title VIII money from the federal government till goes to what scholarships? Who are the ones that enjoy the scholarships? Uh, the Title VIII, I don't want to misspeak. Um, I thought it was both our American scholars and our Russian scholars, but I maybe should double-check that. Is there, is there a lot more activity going on behind the scenes between Russia, Russian people and the American people than the, we know? Because all we hear is the, the leaders of Russia. Uh, I think there's a lot more going on than we see. There's a lot of, um, and I think there always has been. Uh, well, the reason I gave my book the title Daughter of the Cold War was not just because of my father, who played such a big role in the Cold War, but also because I spent years of my life working on projects designed to end the Cold War. I mean, that's what I really cared about. I wanted it to get the people together, and when governments don't get together very well, when we're going through periods like we are now, when the two governments are not happy with each other, uh, citizen diplomacy plays a very important role, and I think a necessary role, to sort of remind the people that we are people, that, you know, our governments are having fights at the moment, but I was thinking of cultural diplomacy and the ballet, jazz diplomacy. There's Tremendous amount of interest in Russia and American jazz. Uh, we're interested in Russian ballet. I was the founding executive director of the um, American Soviet Youth Orchestra, where we had 50, 50 young musicians, 50 from the U.S. and 50 from uh, the Soviet Union. But they, in fact, they were all from the Moscow Conservatory. Early in your book, you talk about the fact that um, your father inherited, and his brothers and sisters inherited money from his father, and you say it was a considerable amount of money. And then all of a sudden you tell us that because of the Depression, money's gone, but then you tell us that you bought a farm in Pennsylvania, or your father did, for $14,000. Take us through that. Well, the reason we, I just learned this very recently, the reason he had the $14,000, which was a lot of money then, was because um, they didn't pay him when he was interned in the camp. They said he wasn't working. I mean, can you imagine they weren't paying any of our diplomats who were imprisoned? They couldn't possibly work. Um, but then that was looked into, and somebody realized there was a grave injustice had been done, and they got the money as a lump sum. So for the first time ever, I think, my parents, in a long time, actually had a little clump of money they could do something with. Is the farm still in your family? Yes, my sister Joan has the farm. It was left to her. And how was the farm used? Well, she lived, right. it's her no, summer. No, not now, but when you, <laughs> early years. Well, you, it was our, it was the only home we had, because we didn't ever own anything in Washington. Svetlana, 
Stalin or Svetlana Alyueva. Alyueva, yeah. Uh, tell us the story about her. For, well, before we do that, let me show some video of her, and oh, that will remind yeah. people what she looked like. This is 67. A woman once known as the Little Princess of the Kremlin arrives in America from Switzerland. Svetlana, the 42-year-old daughter of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, sought asylum here, where one can feel free, she said. Explaining her defection from Russia, she added, Religion has changed me. Communist dogma has lost its significance. It's impossible to exist without God in one's heart. She was 42 then. Uh, you're kind I was of, there. You were there? At the airport. You're rather, uh, you tell us in here how old you are and all that. So uh, what would you, your age have been when she was 42 back then? What uh, years 67. I would have been, I'm not so good at arithmetic. What year were you born? 32. 32. Maybe I can figure it out here. It'd be 35 or mm -hmm. so. So, but, but what was your relationship with her after she arrived in the United States? Well, I had no relationship with her. My father had, she defected in India. To, and the reason she was in India was she had had an Indian boyfriend. They met in a sanitarium, which in Russia is a, combination of a hospital and a health spa. They're very curious. We don't have sanitariums like that. And um, they were there. They fell in love. She claims they got married. They never were legally married, but she, in her mind, they were married. And when he died, she asked for permission to take his ashes and throw them in the Ganges River. And she received that permission. She took the ashes, did that, and then lived for a while with his brother and the family and became a vegetarian and became, she was dis discovering religion, as she mentioned. She became quite spiritual at that time. When she defected, the Russians said, enough is enough, you have to come home now. And they sent two men. There were two men that were stationed there to look, kind of keep an eye on her. And they came to her and said, now, you know, tomorrow you're going home. Maybe because she was Stalin's daughter, they didn't take her passport, so she had a passport. And she walked by the American embassy, and she walked in. Well, you can imagine the embassy. They didn't have anybody there who spoke Russian. Here's a woman coming in off the street saying, I'm the daughter of Stalin in, you know, in New Delhi. I, I think they really didn't know what to do. So she was flown to Switzerland. Um, and my father, they asked my father to fly to, they flew him to Switzerland to talk with her and ascertain whether she was really Stalin's daughter. He said definitely she's Stalin's daughter. And, um, but they talked for two or three days and she talked about her religion. My father was quite spiritual. And so he, she said, I just want quiet and peace. She could be quite dramatic in her own way. And my father was very touched by this and said, well, we have this farm, oddly enough, in East Berlin, Pennsylvania. But, you know, you can come to East Berlin. And uh, she said, oh, no, no, she had something else to do. So she lived with her then-translator Priscilla Johnson, and then she turned on Priscilla. In the end, Svetlana turned on everybody. She unfortunately had a bit of her father in her. It made her very difficult for her to get along with people over a long, you know, for more than a short period. And in the short period, her relationships are very intense.
I want to show a picture of Svetlana being carried by her father. Yeah, that's a famous picture. And what kind of relationship did they have, or what did you learn about their relationship? Well, she knew she knew what her father had done. I mean, she'd been told. And not only that, he, he killed every member of her mother's family was shot. I mean, every single one of them. So she must have known in some way after a while, certainly after, you know, her mother died a bit mysteriously. Um, when, when Svetlana was only six, so she was sort of brought up by servants in the Kremlin. I mean, it was a kind of strange upbringing. Um, so she, um, she um, still talked a lot about her father. She, I think, dedicated the book to her mother, but her mother, on the other hand, um, she didn't really know. Mother died when she was six. The only person she knew, really the only family she had was her father. And he made, she would kind of excuse him by saying he was influenced by Beria. And Beria was the bad guy. What know. did Beria do? Well, he was head of the KGB. There's a picture we have also of her sitting in his lap. Yeah, well, he went after young girls. He was famous for that. But I don't think he would have dared go after Stalin's daughter. So she came to the United States, stayed at your farm for a while? Yeah. And first, were you there with her alone from time to time? Oh, well, and well, first my sister and her, her husband, then husband, took care of her. And then they went into the Peace Corps, and um, then I came. But I had three children who were aged four, six, and eight, and they came with me. And then my sister, because of Peace Corps training, said, would I mind taking her children, who were four and seven? So I had five children under the age of eight, and I had this dream. I was so excited about taking care of Svetlana. I mean, I thought this was huge. I remember I bought a brand new notebook. I was going to take notes. I was going to, I think in the back of my mind, I was going to write an article. So I thought this was a big thing in my life. Well, of course, with five children and Svetlana to feed, and particularly at that point, her vegetarian diet meant she wouldn't touch the food the children ate. Hamburgers and hot dogs were not for her. Instead, she wanted risottos and elaborate things that took quite a bit of work. Um, and we didn't have the simplest. My parents weren't very modern. We didn't have a washer. We didn't have a dryer. I took all the laundry in for seven people into the local thing and put dimes in the in those days, it cost a dime to wash your clothes in the washing machine. Uh, shopping was a big thing. Seven or eight people. His translator came. His lawyer came. I mean, her lawyer came, her translator. Um, and they all stayed there and had to eat as well. And um, And somebody had to go to the airport to pick them up, namely me. So it was hardly the sort of tete-a-tete that I had envisaged. Uh, we did occasionally talk, but more and more, I spent most of the time in the kitchen. Here's Svetlana uh, Stalin in April of 67 again. This is uh, speaking at a press conference a few days after she arrived. I have, of 
First, I disapprove many things, but I think that uh, many other people who still are in our Central Committee and Politburo should be responsible for the same things for which uh, he alone was accused. And uh, if I feel somebody responsible for, for those horrible things, killing people, injustice, I feel that responsible for this was and is the party, the regime and the ideology. So why did she turn on the, the cannons? She turned on everybody. She just didn't I mean, how, did she, how did you feel it? You well, I think she just dropped all communication with me. I didn't hear from her. I never got a letter. She wrote a book about that summer, and I'm not in it. I mean, it, it's a, it didn't happen. Happily, I have the photographs, so I can prove I was it. But I mean, that's, she felt that strongly. Then six years later, out of the blue, she called me up. Didn't I want to come have tea? Did I want to come see Olga? It was she by that time she had a little girl named Olga, who was never allowed to learn a word of Russian. She spoke only English. And so I went to tea and met Olga and kept looking at this sweet little girl and thinking, my God, that's Stalin's granddaughter. More stories from your life. Here's a picture of somebody you knew well. In the picture is Jacqueline Kennedy and your second husband, Jack Warnicky. When you see that, what's your reaction? Well, they, they, I knew they had a romance before I met him, and, and that looks as if it was taken at that time. And what, was, what were the circumstances of their well, romance? He, he was the architect who designed President Kennedy's grave, so he worked very closely with the First Lady. And he also architected the heart building in the Senate over here, mm -hmm. among other things. Uh, how but, serious it, was that relationship? I wasn't involved in the relationship. I think he took it. I don't think she was, my guess is she was not very serious about it. He was an impoverished, he was an architect, not impoverished, but his financial picture went up and down quite dramatically from time to time. Um, and she obviously liked to marry people with money and position. And I don't think in the long run, I, I think this was something she enjoyed and it was very short and she broke it off. I don't think it was really going anywhere. How'd you meet him? I met him at a party in San Francisco. I'd just come back from Cuba. What have you been doing in Cuba? I wasn't in Cuba. I'd, I'd come back from not being in Cuba. I'd gone with my, I'm sorry, I'd gone with my husband and we were going to, um, we were going to go together. He was writing articles for the Sacramento Bee on Cuba. And when we got to Mexico, we learned that the Cubans wouldn't give me a visa. And so I had to make my way back, and friends and I made my way back to San Francisco. Finally, it was difficult. They, I didn't have a proper visa. I had a transit visa, and they wouldn't let me go out the way I came in because I was supposed to be transiting. So you can get involved sometimes with stupidities like that. So why were you attracted, and vice versa, why was he attracted to you? Do you remember the circumstances? No, it wasn't very serious. I was married. And then, but then we made a, we did dance, and we had a good time, and yes, he was an attractive man, and I did certainly notice him. Uh, but then we met each other later. Um, 
I think it was a couple of years later. And uh, th at that time, it became, you know, much more serious. And then we dated for a long time. You have a, a spot in your book where you say, a few months later, I told Jack, meaning the fellow that you were going to marry, that you were planning to ask for a divorce from C.K. McClatchy. And then he said to you, you don't know what you're doing. I don't want any part of this. I'm not interested in getting involved with a woman with three children. I think we should stop seeing each other. That's true. You obviously remembered that for a long time. That's in your book. Why? Well, because it was it was very. I was planning to get a divorce anyway. I mean, this was. Um, but when I told him, and um, and we hadn't seen each other that much, but it had been a strong attraction. Um, you know, I just remember him saying, "I." It was a very strong statement. I don't want anything to do with you and your three children, and and um, that was fine. I mean, I went ahead and got a divorce. That's. That plan did not depend on Jack Warnke. But then you married him what well, then, year? What year? Uh, we, we were married in 69. And how long did you stay married? Eight years. And why did you divorce? Um, it was not a compatible marriage. We had different standards, different, um, different values is a better way of putting it. And... Um, he was a very ambitious man, and uh, he wasn't a terribly nice man, and he was never terribly nice to my children. And this really got to be worse and worse. He's not alive any longer? No, he died. And what He were was older than I am, and he died. He was 15 years older than I am, and he died at the age of 91. Who did you meet through... Jack Warnicke that you became either friends with or you ended up doing tours to Russia and that's what I want to get to. Well, next. I became much closer to the Kennedy family. He'd been a real the architect of the Kennedy family. Not only did he do, he did um, Senator Ted Kennedy's house, he did Bobby Kennedy's pool house, he did Jackie Onassis's wind turbine or something like that. Um, and I knew Senator Ted Kennedy, we were in the same class at Harvard and Radcliffe, so we vaguely knew each other from back then, but I was not a close friend or anything. I just had said hello. Um, but so we saw, I mean, Jack was very, it was a very glamorous life for me for a while, much more glamorous than I'd been leading. And of course I was impressed by all those things. The Kennedys, I'd say, were one of the chief people that I met. And um, then I ended up uh, taking Ted Kennedy and his wife and two children as, as their sort of escort translator to uh, to the Soviet Union in 1974. Before we get there, I want to read to you what you said about Jack Warnicke. He was controlling, insanely jealous, and wanted me to be at his beck and call, regardless of my children or other commitments. He had an explosive temper and when angry, would frequently keep me up most of the night, haranguing me, although he knew I had to get up in the morning with my children. Sleep deprivation became a constant part of my life. Mm, it was true. How did you deal with that then? What was your way out of this? Well, my way out was, in the end, leaving. I think that was the biggest way out. I, I walked out the door. 
But even before that, I got very involved in, that's what made me turn, partly what made me become a photographer. I started studying photography, which Jack hated because he couldn't call me up when I was in the photo lab. He would call me five or six times a day to make sure I was everywhere I was supposed to be. And um, so the photography was for me a, a different world, a world I could escape into. And I worked as a photographer for 10 years. What's the story about the dinners that he asked you to put on? No, he was very fussy with the dinners, and and it's in the book. One time he, he wrote his staff, his office, a, a letter, a memorandum with, I think, the 18 or 16 things I'd done wrong with the dinner. 18. I remember reading them. <laughs> 18. It was awful. And that was a dinner. Do you remember who that dinner was for? No, I have no idea anymore. We entertained, you know, that's how he got clients. In those days, you know, you get your clients very often from personal connections, architects. Now, i got to stop here and again ask you the same question I asked you in the beginning. Why do you want people to know this? Why is the book? For several reasons. One is I think the book... It, it is a part of history now. I'm so old, you know, part of it goes back. I think just a lot of people don't even realize we were allies with the Russians. People don't have historical memories of that. I also think the book is important because it's about a woman who graduated from college in the 50s when women had very few opportunities. I mean, if you didn't want to be a school teacher, a librarian, or a nurse, there wasn't very much you could do. I wanted to go in the Foreign Service. There was no question of that. They didn't, didn't take women. Um, they didn't take any women? No. Well, secretaries, yeah, but not women officers. And I was interested in doing that. Um, and, um, I mean, I was in a woman's college, but was the, pres the president was a man because you couldn't have a woman president. Radcliffe in Boston. Radcliffe, yeah. I mean, crazy that a woman's college had to have a man president. There were a lot of things that were very difficult about women then. I mean, we've come a long way. When was the first time in your life uh, that you felt that you were your own person and not your, in the shadow of your father? Well, part of me has always felt in the shadow. I mean, my father was so brilliant. He was so exceptional. He was so unusual that... Um, you never totally, I always felt I could never live up to it. I would never be good enough. But um, I think it was when I moved over to, really when I moved over and was working so hard in Russia and Ukraine. Because I began to develop the jobs I had and the things I did had nothing to do with my father. And what did you do? Well, in, um, in Russia I spent four years I joined, I felt guilty because I had always worked with men. I was usually the only woman. And when I was president of my own consulting company, we would walk into a room in Moscow, and the men would come up to me. They always assumed I was the interpreter, because that's all women did, and say, where's your president? And I'd say, but I'm the president. And, um, you know, that was kind of a learning thing. And then my clients were always men, so I joined something called the Alliance of American and Russian women. And it was sort of a do-good 
organization started as, at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union. And the idea was that the women over there didn't know about businesses and running your own business. And we would take American professional women over there and teach and bring the American professional women to Russia and have conferences and sort of teach people. Well, I think that was a little bit, looking back on it, I'm a little embarrassed by how confident we were now. We thought we knew maybe better than them. I'll tell you, our, our courses got a lot better very quickly when I realized what we were doing. Um, What's the story of the coup and where you were when you were in Russia well, at the time, in Moscow? But anyway, the, it, well, it, it was um, back to, okay, back to um, the coup. It, I was with the Alliance. We put on conferences there. We were putting on a conference in Moscow. And we were always looking for ways to save money because the Alliance wasn't very well funded. And we put them up in a guest house of the Uzbek embassy on sort of the other side of the river. It was a very peculiar place for us to have chosen. And when the coup started, we had just no idea what was going on. And television kept playing Swan Lake over and over again. And I was running around Moscow. I mean, the women we brought over didn't know anything from us. So I and the president were running around Moscow. We were told that the embassy wanted everybody's passports. They wanted to know who was there. and They were making plans to evacuate. It was very dramatic. But we, um, we still put on our conference in the middle of that. And about two-thirds of the people came. It was unbelievable. And then the next morning, very very early, was our train. The next night was our train out of Moscow. I was so relieved to get those women on the train. In 1978, you took Joan Baez to yeah. Russia. What were the circumstances? Well, I was chosen to do that because of a friend of mine who was on the San Francisco Chronicle, an acquaintance. He wasn't even a friend. Uh, she was supposed to be going over there with Santana and the Beach Boys to do a big concert on Leningrad Square. And I was chosen to find the right song for her to sing and translate it into English. And I did. It was by Bulat Akojava, and it was called A Circle of Friends. It was the perfect song, if I do say so myself. And um, And so... That, of course, when the communists really realized that Santana and the Beach Boys were not what they wanted, they canceled the concert two weeks before it was going to happen. But we already had our visas. We were all set to go. And um, so I was very disappointed. But I got a call a few days later also from John Wasserman from the Chronicle. And he said, Joan wants to go because she wants to meet Sakharov. Will you take us and arrange that? And I, I, all my life, have had this trouble of um, jumping into things for which I'm not really prepared. And as usual, I said, oh, yes, of course I can arrange that. <laughs> but in the end, I did. How did you arrange it? Well, her, it, Joan did a lot of the work. Uh, her daughter lives up in Boston. The daughter of Sakharov's second wife lives in Boston. It wasn't Sakharov's daughter. He was married to a woman named Elena Bonner and her daughter lived in Boston. And so she drew us maps, because they've taken, very cleverly had taken the number off his building, so you couldn't find it. 
so she had maps. We knew what building it was. She wrote the code so you could get in the front door. Um, when we got in, they had they had turned out all the lights in the interior halls so you couldn't see, so it was pitch dark. And we felt our way along the hall, feeling the doors, and I knew it was the seventh floor down or something. And uh, so we got there, and... Um, at first, he was very uninterested in Joan Baez. She was talking about various... She's a very political... She has strong beliefs and has always been very political. And she was trying to tell him about how bad things were in Chile, as I remember it. He wasn't interested in that. And then she said, can I sing for you? And she had the most beautiful voice, I, th- I think, to this day. She had a glorious voice. And she sang, and he melted, and suddenly everybody was the best of friends. <laughs> and he did something very sweet. He pointed to the apartment above. He said, even they like music. <laughs> Which, what about the money? Oh, she, the, the more difficult part of it was, I got a hint from John Wasserman when we were in Helsinki. We'd already flown from San Francisco to New York to Helsinki. We were on the last lap going into Russia saying, I think she has money in her guitar case, because she was taking the guitar case to the bathroom, which she normally didn't do. And so I was very tense, thinking we're probably smuggling in money into Russia, and we could be in deep trouble. But I sort of felt we'd gone too far. How could I back out at this point? So we were very lucky. We at so somehow in milling around, waiting to get getting in line to go through customs, we ran into a well-known film director, Nikita Mikhailov. He did *Burnt by the Sun*, and um, I translated for him at a Berkeley film festival. He knew me and very friendly. And then I introduced him to Joan Baez, and he knew who Joan Baez was. And he said, "What are you doing standing in this line? I'll get you. You know, you need to have VIP treatment." And his father wrote the Soviet national anthem, so he was well regarded. And he took us up. We flew through customs. Nobody looked at the thing. We got through so fast. There's always been that element of the Soviet Union. If you know the right people, the rules do not apply. You have any idea how much money she gave? <laughs> she didn't give. We went and met with the Jewish dissidents, and she started to talk about it. And I kicked her and said, write it down, um, because I knew the place was bugged, and, you know, and I and then I sh- gave it, showed it to the woman who was in charge there, or seemed to be the leading figure, and she said, no, 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 we don't want any money. I mean, if she gives us money, we'll go to jail. Now, don't let her give us anything. Speaking of the bugging, didn't your father find a microphone? He in did, the, in, in the, the seal of the United States. It's in the Spy Museum now in Washington, if you want to see it. And how did he find it? Uh, some security man came in and finally asked him. He didn't like doing it, but they made him go to the residence and call his secretary and tell her that he wanted to dictate something to him. Because they began to suspect they'd been trying to find this bug. But they suspected maybe it was um, could be turned on and off by remote control, which turned out to be the case. And when it was off, it couldn't be detected. And so when he he decided to 
he um, dictated to his secretary in the room where the bug was, and they turned it on to here. By the way, just for the heck of it, say three or four sentences in Russian. Что вы хотите, что я говорю по-русски? Ну, это был очень интересный разговор. Я очень рада, что мы имели возможность говорить о книге. Hard language to learn? Yeah. How did you do it? I learned it about five times, and then finally it stuck. <laughs> I mean, I learned it in school. When I went to a Soviet school, I spoke perfect Russian by the end of the year. And you were what age? Twelve. When was the last time you were in Russia? Two years ago. The change between the early years in Russia and now. What do you see? Oh, humongous. The change between Soviet Russia and Russia are humongous. Give us an example. Well, for one thing, I mean, now the well, a big difference is they're modern. They were very, very, very old-fashioned. Now you have Alfa Romeos and fancy cars and modern apartment buildings and all these things that the original Moscow I went to didn't have. Um, people are much more traveled. Many more people speak English. It's... Um, it's a, and now people will, even though the TV and the press is controlled, people will talk quite openly. And so people will talk to you about things they don't approve of or things they like. Now, it's never Putin's fault, you understand. They're usually mad at the mayor of Moscow or the governor of some province. It's somebody else who takes the blame. It's not Putin. When did you meet Putin? I met Putin in 91 in St. Petersburg. Was he deputy mayor then? Yeah. He was deputy mayor. I was running my business consulting firm. I had a client who wanted something to do with the port of St. Petersburg. And um, I had a meeting with the real mayor, Subchak. He was called away, and so they substituted the deputy mayor, Putin. And I was annoyed because I wasn't meeting with the mayor. I, who, I knew Putin had been KGB. I was sort of negative about it all. And he came in, he was equally negative. He didn't want to meet with some American woman who claimed to run a business. I mean, I think he was very suspicious of, of women. He, he had no gallantry. And he was the coldest, he had the coldest eyes I've ever seen. Very big, blue, cold eyes. And all I could think of is, I wonder what, what would happen if he was interrogating me. Because I knew he was KGB, you know, and that, that's really what went through my mind. I didn't get what I wanted, by the way. <laughs> now, this is a, a story out of context, but I'm going to show you some video, uh, 20 seconds long, of somebody that you knew years ago. This was a, an interview done in 1984, and see if you remember this fellow. I almost always used to vote Democrat. I have made the best. I've always believed in non-voting. If you don't think either of the candidates is worthy of the United States, I don't see any reason why I should go and vote for one of them. So you've done that? I've done it all. <clears throat> Joe Alsop, where did you meet him and why? Oh, he was a great friend of my family's. He and my father fought endlessly. They had enormous verbal wars 
but they were also very good friends. He stayed at our house in Princeton. And, um, and then he was my escort when I was invited for the first time in my life with my parents to go to the, the British Embassy for the coronation ball for Queen Elizabeth. And he had no interest in me at all. I mean, he was interested in all the political figures and everybody there, not this young college woman that he'd been saddled with. But when we did get to the ball, um, my father saw that I didn't know anybody, and he, he came back and said, don't you know anybody? Of course I didn't know anybody. I was at Radcliffe, and he said, well, you have to meet someone. And he took me over and introduced me to John Kennedy, and that's how I met President Kennedy. What did he think he of you? He was not president then. He was running for the Senate, or was in the Senate. And what was his reaction to you? I didn't think he had much reaction to me. However, the minute we we went out in the garden, he wanted to sit down, I think because his back was hurting. Now, I mean, looking back on it. And then Joe Walsup immediately saw us and became extremely interested in me because he, he, of course, wanted to talk to Kennedy. It had nothing to do with me. But 20, I don't know how many years later, when he was... Um, now, when he was senator, he came to Sacramento, and he there were about 30 people. There was an official group meeting him, including my husband. And my husband said to me, do you want to go? I said, of course. So we were out at the airport, and Kennedy got off the plane, and he said hello to everybody. He got to me, and he said, with his finger pointing in that Kennedy way, I remember you. You were at Queen Elizabeth's coronation ball. It was five years later. I mean, it's extraordinary, the memory he had for... I had a different name. I wasn't Grace Kennan. I was Grace McClatchy, the wife of somebody in Sacramento. I don't think he was, you know... Now, if your father was alive, and you said he died in 2005, mm-hmm. at 101, yes, and he read this book, what would he say to you? I wouldn't have written that book if he was still alive. Why not? Well, I, it's, I'm quite hard on my mother, and I would never want to hurt her that way. When I mean, did she die? 2008. And what kind of a relationship did you have with her at that point? Oh, we, we were, she loved me, and I loved her, and you know, I mean, we, we made up. For the, the um, And in fact, she was so thrilled when I would come out to Princeton. But she had dementia, so for the last eight or ten years of her life, she was not herself. But as well as you knew your dad, what would he do, what do you think he would say to you after he read this book? Well, I don't think he would like the personal parts. He wouldn't very much dislike those. I think he would be proud of the rest of it. But he would not have... Um, he himself has written his memoirs, if you ever read them. But there is, there is certainly nothing personal in there. When the first volume came out, I was so excited. And, of course, I looked myself up in the index, which is a very childlike thing to do, but I did. Are you in there? Yes, it says, on June 5th, 1932, a girl, Grace, was born without incident. <laughs> that's, that's What is your personal relationship today with your three children? Well, I love them all. They're all very different. What do they do? Where do they live? Um, the two oldest, Charles and Nadera, live in California. 
Charles has had a lot of problems with addiction and various things, so he's had a very up and down life. Um, and my daughter Adair is lives with a partner um, in San Francisco. She's also gay, and um, and she is very involved with all sorts of causes. She also looks after a lot of the McClatchy family real estate that's come to my children. Um, she's very busy, and she has a huge circle of friends. Now, are you still... And my son Kevin, of course, is, is now... Um, my son Kevin is, is chairman of the board of McClatchy Newspapers, which is a very large newspaper chain. Are you still working? Uh, yes, I'm chairman of the board of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. Where does that? It's located, located. in New York. Mm-hmm. And what's its mission? It was founded by Hans Morgenthau 43 years ago, and the mission was to promote a more realistic American foreign policy. I don't think we've quite arrived, so I think it's still got a long ways to go. And we do um, public programs, we have members, we have a membership thing. Uh, and then we also do a lot of track two work, particularly in Southeast Asia. We've worked very closely for 20 years with the Chinese and the Taiwanese, bringing them together in things that are never advertised or photographed or spoken of. Last question. When was the happiest time in your life? I'm not very good at the ests, the happiest, the saddest. the Favorite time? Um, I think one of the happiest times is right now. Because, I mean, to suddenly have have the book be so... A lot of people are reading it. People are enjoying it. People are saying it's well-written. It's very... I fought a lot of uphill battles, and it's very nice to have this kind of um, sort of, you know, recognition when you never thought you would. The name of the book is Daughter of the Cold War... And our guest has been Grace Kennan Warnicky, and we thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's been very interesting to be on the program. Thanks. For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. Next week.